This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in town today to speak to uh, steelmakers. It's all part of his Cross Canada tour of steel making and aluminum uh, industries here in this country. And obviously in light of the concern about uh, tariffs being imposed by the United States over the last little while. Mr. Prime Minister, good morning and welcome back to uh, Hamilton and welcome back to the program. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be back in Hamilton. It's great to be back on with you. Let's talk a little bit about the the current situation. You've seen the numbers, I know, Prime Minister, and we've talked with our Hamilton Chamber of Commerce here since the talk of tariffs uh, from uh, Washington a couple of weeks ago now. Uh, The concern here is that if they were to be imposed, it would probably have a direct impact on about 10,000 jobs, maybe 40,000 in ancillary industries. Uh, There's a lot of angst, a lot of concern about uh, what might happen here in this community. What's your message today to to Hamilton Steelworkers and certainly to the Hamilton economic community? Well, first, that was my message uh, to uh, President Trump uh, a week and a half ago when we spoke uh, first about this, uh, that there were tens of thousands of workers and their families uh, and communities uh, in Canada that were going to be affected by these tariffs. Uh, But there were also uh, lots of communities and workers and families in the United States that would be negatively impacted by these tariffs, that our our economies are so uh, intertwined uh, that they cannot uh, imagine that putting these tariffs in would be uh, beneficial for, uh, for, for the United States either. Uh, so I'm here today to, to listen to the workers, to talk with them, to reassure them that we're on the right track, uh, both on NAFTA negotiations, and, which is a concern to the president, uh, but also on standing up for uh, Canadian interests and uh, defending uh, defending Canadian workers. This is something that we've been working on over the past uh, year and a bit uh, with the uh, U.S. administration, building relationships, making the case for, uh, for uh, keeping uh, trade uh, open and fair with Canada. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it can continues to uh, to produce produce results you've maintained the lines of communication with uh, u.s representatives I, I i know both senators governors and, and and members of congress as a matter of fact i know that you talked to the president again yesterday afternoon by telephone uh is that message resonating i mean you're on the side of the angels on this i mean even republican congress folks are saying uh tariffs are bad for the united states and for canada uh economists right across the united states are saying the same thing and the message is pretty strong and pretty consistent but is it resonating at the white house well, that's where the conversations that I have regularly with the president are uh, continue to be really important. Uh, this, you know, this president works on on a number of different levels, and uh, the the personal relationship uh, is uh, is uh, relevant. So I'm glad to be able to remind him that no, there is no uh, transshipment of uh, of uh, Chinese steel through Canada. We're uh, working together on preventing things like diversion. We're uh, working together to ensure that uh, we're protecting North. Americans, uh, a very integrated steel and aluminum sectors, and that's uh, that's something that uh, he gets. And it's nice when both the you know, the personal contact and all the numbers and experts and uh, folks he's surrounded with are, are all saying the same thing. I mean, the numbers are there. The the concern here, as as you've articulated, is is steel dumping uh, from foreign sources, and and you know China being one of them, if not the major one right now. It would seem that the, that the best tact here would be a cooperative effort between Canada and the United States instead of building up bridges and walls. Uh, absolutely, and and that's that's what I uh, brought up with the president. Brought it up with uh, with Congress representatives as well. We already have very strong measures. Uh, 
against transshipment, very strong uh, controls. Our CBSA agents uh, inspect just about every, uh, every shipment uh, of, uh, of steel products. We, we are making sure that there is not sort of a backdoor into the North American market through Canada. But as I said to the Americans, look, we're happy uh, to make joint announcements to move forward uh, in, in even stronger ways. Uh, this is something that matters deeply to, uh, uh, to Canadian steel workers as well. I mean, I've heard the concerns over the years uh, from lots of Canadian steel workers on uh, on uh, imports of, uh, of of Chinese, particularly steel. So this is something that we're we've have been very active on over the past two years, and we will continue to. And the other aspect of things is is just emphasizing to the United States that the uh, that the the national security side of this just doesn't make any sense. And that's something that uh, the president agreed with me on as far back as last year. Uh, when I highlighted the amount of uh, Canadian steel and aluminum in uh, in American military products. Let's go back to that G7 meeting that you referenced, Prime Minister, because that's, that you told us that at that time President Trump uh, told you that uh, that Canada would get an exemption if, in fact, tariffs were to put, put in place. I, I don't want to ask you to delve into the U.S. political scene. Uh, that can get pretty petty from time to time. But he does have a propensity from time to time to change his mind, flip-flop, as you were, on some of these issues. Are you confident that he's going to stick to his commitment from, from what he told you a year ago to today? Well, our conversation a year ago really was focused on the uh, the national security side of things, and he he very much uh, volunteered that there was there was a a clear uh, you know case to be made for for the fact that Canada should not be uh, subject to national security uh, ex- uh, you know limits or or, or or restrictions because you know we're Canada we're your, uh, their closest closest friends and allies so I knew on that side that there was a, a strong argument to make but you know you have to continue to make the economic arguments as well but I will say in in dealing with the president uh, you know, for over a year now you know he has consistently when he has said something to me that he was going to do or not do uh, he has followed up on that uh, and and I know there's uh, there's you know, other people have different perceptions but in terms of Canada US relations he has been consistent and straight with me Prime Minister, you've insisted that uh, the discussion about tariffs and, and NAFTA are, are two separate issues on two different tracks at this stage. Yet, in a couple of different statements now, the, the president has actually drawn those two together and said that one is tied to the other, that that the uh, the tariff exemption right now is only until the NAFTA deal is done, and if it's a good deal, then there'll be no tariffs, etc. Uh, the concern on this side of the border is that the president will use this uh, possibility of tariffs as leverage in the NAFTA talks. Are you concerned about that? Uh, I think this is something that, that we've been sort of uh, dealing with over over a while. There have always been sort of threats uh, or or at least strong language associated with NAFTA, whether it was, oh, no, negotiate a good deal or we'll tear it up. Now it's a negotiate a good deal or there might be tariffs. Uh, you know, th- that's that's the kind of, of uh, positioning that the president uh, has been doing consistently and our response has simply been to uh, to continue to stay sort of open constructive but very firm on defending Canadian interests uh, at the table and, and keeping doing the work I, of course we are looking forward to renewing to updating to improving NAFTA in ways that uh, has benefit for for Canada for the United States and for Mexico there is an absolute path to do that and that's what we're uh, we're going to stay focused on with that in mind I know that uh, the phone conversation you had with President Trump yesterday he uh, reiterated once again 
that he wants to get an after deal done ASAP. I think the suggestion was he wanted it done, done by spring. Uh, you're on record as saying you want it done properly, not necessarily quickly. Are, are you feeling pressure now to get this deal done, even though it may not be in Canada's best interests? Uh, we're going to always stand up and make sure that whatever deal comes forward, it's in Canada's best interest. Uh, the others have uh, time pressures, the Mexicans are around an election, uh, the U.S. around uh, midterms and around wanting to get it done. Uh, we're going to be thoughtful about moving forward, but we're not going to flinch on, on Canadian interests. So with that in mind, obviously, uh, and, and I, I've been on record on this program as saying I think uh, Christia Freeland has done an exceptional job with her team uh, representing the Canadian side on this, but uh, but you're sticking to your guns then as far as what's uh, what's Canada looking forward to this? Oh, we've said consistently that uh, a, a bad deal is uh, worse than no deal. Uh, we are going to be getting the right deal for Canada. Uh, we're going to move forward in a positive way. But I know that there is a win-win-win for all three countries. Uh, we just are, are going to continue to work to get there, and uh, it's great if it can be done quicker. Prime Minister, I know your time is tight, but one final question for you, and it goes right back to the uh, impact on steel industry. Uh, if, in fact, the tariffs do come into place, not necessarily for Canada, but even for other countries, including China, the concern about dumping into our market and the U.S. market, of course, is still there. Could you very briefly explain to us what Canadians are doing to try to, to mitigate the impact of offshore dumping that's going to have an impact on the steel industry here? We have had strong uh, countervailing duties and, and uh, uh, levies and tariffs on uh, Chinese steel uh, from the very beginning. We have strong border controls. Uh, and regardless of this, what I told the aluminum workers yesterday in the SAG Day, what I'm going to be telling steel workers today, uh, is that uh, regardless of what happens, uh, the government has their backs. We will be there uh, to help through any uncertainty, any disruption uh, that happens uh, in the uh, in the global industry because of uh, because of these uh, these issues. This is something that we are not going to let uh, workers uh, shoulder the burden alone on. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in Hamilton today to speak uh, at both Stelco and, of course, ArcelorMittal DeFasco and uh, send that strong message about support for the Canadian steel industry. Prime Minister, thanks as always for the time. I know we'll talk again soon. Always a pleasure, Bill. Take care. Take care now. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The provincial election. Yeah, don't forget about that with all the other things going on here today. That uh, June 7th, there will be a provincial election. And, of course, this past weekend, the Ontario Progressive Conservatives selected Doug Ford, former Toronto City Councillor, as their leader, their the guy that's going to lead the, the, the fold, carry the banner for them, heading into this provincial election. And uh, it didn't take uh, Ford long to start with the bombast about what he's going to do, uh, even mentioning in his acceptance speech, Kathleen Wynne, your days are numbered as Premier. Uh, and talking in uh, recent days now about just what he intends to bring to the race and uh, it's uh, rather interesting. Uh, he's being characterized by his supporters as uh, as a uh, populist, as somebody who speaks for the, the little guy, the taxpayer here in Ontario. Uh, he says he's going to get rid of the elites in government. Uh, this, of course, from a guy who's a uh, very, very wealthy businessman from Etobicoke. Uh, and by definition, I guess, is an elite. But I guess he's uh, the champion of the, uh, the, the little guy, not the elites themselves. Uh, message not unlike what we heard in the presidential election last year. So what kind of impact is this going to have on the race, and, uh, and how is it going to impact the other two leaders as they try to formulate their strategies? Let's bring Barry Kay into the conversation, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. Barry, thanks for the time. Great to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. Uh, for for poli-sci guys and for uh, people that just love the politics, boy, this is, uh, this is red meat for us. There's more stuff going on here. But be before we get into Doug Ford and the implications he's going to have on the race, what do you think about the leadership and how things went on Saturday? 
Well, they didn't. <laughs> the, um, look, uh, you know, again, the Conservatives were a victim of circumstance. It was virtually a tie vote. In fact, uh, now that we've seen some numbers, it, it looks like um, it looks like Christine Elliott actually had the most support, but they had this this funny system and this rationale for it, uh, where, in fact, each riding would be weighted the same. But it meant that a couple of the far northern ridings where I'm told something like 30 people voted, uh, whereas, you know, 10 times that many or more may have voted in other ridings. That meant that the people who voted up in, up in those far north ridings had 10 times the impact of the others. And that was why, ultimately, because it ended up being so close, nobody could have predicted it was going to be that close. Ultimately. You know, let me ask you about that, because I know that political science professors and some of the pundits that were trying to kill time on the broadcast on Saturday, because they, they were you know, waiting for this thing to finally end, they, they kept coming back to that and saying, well, this is a more fair system. It gives equal weight. It doesn't, actually. It's, it, I think it's quite the opposite. Well, it's a different kind of system. What it does is avoid the following situation, which is uh, candidates might be able to flood a few writings with a large number a number of uh, members remember that the memberships are normally a response to candidates going out and signing up all sorts of new members mm-hmm. some of those people may be party loyalists but many aren't uh, in fact in some cases there's probably fraud and people have their memberships paid for them um, that too can be a problem i mean we we emphasize the problem that emerged saturday because of the system that was in place uh... one can imagine and i i think the conservatives are the only party that does it quite this way right now um, look, in the old, old days, uh, you basically had uh, conventions where delegates just showed up. People at the local riding level would pick delegates. Actually, I thought those were fun. I mean, this goes back to my youth now. Back in the days when Trudeau and Stanfield and others, uh, Mulroney and Clark, were, um, were, were getting selected, uh, that indeed there was much more drama at those conventions as a TV event. Um, this was deemed to be fairer. Um, I'm sure they didn't anticipate it was going to end this particular way. I really can't blame them specifically. I'm sure the opposition parties for a few days will make some hay with it, saying that if the Tories can't run a convention, how can they run the government? But I don't think that issue is going to be something we're going to be talking about three months from now. And, and again, I mean, I, I can voice my concern about you know that and the fact that you know somebody who lives up in Blind River uh, had a lot more influence on the selection of uh, the leader than somebody who lives in, in Rexdale, for instance. But it is what it is, and and uh, I, I guess we go back to Winston Churchill's quote: "You know, democracy is still the best political system, given the, the comparison with everyone else." Yeah, no, look, uh, there there were there are problems with this. I don't want to diminish that. I just want to suggest there's potential problems with the other system. Exactly, where people can just buy as many memberships for people and have them vote. It seems to me that that was part of Patrick Brown's appeal. He was great at organizing people to be signed up for membership. Now, in fact, he ultimately won under that, that, um, the, the same kind of, kind of system as well. One of the interesting parallels between the Brown selection and this one is that, in fact, Brown was, in fact, deemed to be uh, on the right wing of the party, a social conservative, and that was his appeal for people that supported him back I guess it was about four years ago. I think it was 2014 when he was selected. Mm-hmm. Um, and indeed, those were the people that seemed to have made the difference with regard to Ford's election as well. Some of them, of course, being people who had originally voted for uh, Tanya Granick Allen, who was very much a very avowedly um, um, and, and energetic uh, social conservative supporting you know, issues like reform on, uh, on, on sex education and, and abortion and so forth. Um, the problem for the conservatives, though, is that while undoubtedly within the party there's a very strong constituency, it was evident in 2014 with Brown. Brown ultimately, of course, turned tail and decided he wanted to win the election, and he sort of moved much more toward the center and again gave up some of those social conservative policies. I'm not sure what's going to happen with regard to Ford, but the winning a provincial election in Ontario, which is a very centrist kind of province, 
uh, involves different kind of people than winning the conservative nomination. Um, we, we found that um, Brown made the calculation that he had to move away from his natural tendencies to move toward the center. Uh, it's not clear what's, what, uh, what Ford is going to do, whether or not he is going to move to the center. Um, certainly among the initial thoughts I have about this, though, is that apart from Tanya Allen, who would have been terrific for the liberals, that in fact Ford winning the election rather than or winning the, um, the leadership uh, rather th- than Elliott is certainly good news for, for the liberals. I think the liberals certainly start way behind. In fact, there was a poll just over the weekend suggesting they're now running third behind the NDP. I'm not sure that's going to hold. But nonetheless, the, the liberals are taking a hit. The liberals are in no sense on even footing with the conservatives going into this. But they do have a chance. They have a chance because of the fact that Ford is a more unpredictable figure, uh, shooting much more from the hip. Some are com- comparing, of course, to Trump, and the, much of his style is like that. But I'd compare him to his brother. Um, and indeed, I don't really know Doug Ford very well. He had one term on city council. He's not the kind of guy who's very accommodating with others. He wants to very much to do it his own way. He was very much a supporter of his brother. But indeed, the, uh, the, the prism I would look at um, Ford through right now is, the, is to sort of look at how his brother Rob, who of course is no longer with us, but how Rob handled things. And I think that's something that at least gives the liberals an opportunity going into this election. Maybe the NDP as well. But Rob Ford's appeal, and, I, and again, I, no, I never vote for the guy who didn't live in Toronto, but I know people that did at the time, and, and even those that weren't supporters of his, had to at least give credence to the fact that he was a populist. He showed up at every meeting. If a grocery store opened, he was there. And he shook hands with everybody. And he, 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 did, he, was, he was not big on policy, quite frankly, but he was, he was the man of the people. They, and you know as well as I do, Barry, an awful lot of people, can be just as impressed by somebody who spends five minutes shaking their hand and saying, good to meet you, and, you know, hey, I met so-and-so today. And that resonates with them a lot more than saying, hey, here's my policy on taxation, because a lot of that just kind of floats over people's heads. So Rob Ford was a great retail politician. We haven't seen that from Doug. No, I don't think he Doug had, has He had one term on city council. He had the worst attendance record on city council no. while he was there. Uh, nothing in the way of policy that you could say, yeah, that's what Doug Ford brought to the table. There was not a whole lot of, of substance there. We don't know what we're getting with Ford, and we especially, you, you mentioned that, that uh, his brother was light on policy, although he had a few slogans like, uh, you know, the, the notion of getting off the gravy train and, uh, and uh, you know, to trying to end the, ch- the challenges to people driving in the city. He had some slogans. That's all we've really seen from Doug Ford either. Among his claims is that he's going to cut the fat in government. Well, that's easy to say. But, um, in fact, every, you know, most governments coming into office are, are, are making that kind of pledge. We have no idea. He wants to cut taxes, and that's certainly not unpopular. Everybody wants to cut taxes. That's a winner. But where are they going to be cut from? Are they going to be cut? Are we going to see changes with regard to the pharmacare program? Are we going to see cutbacks in uh, health care? Are we going to see cutbacks in university funding? Um, those are the big spending items. Education and health are the big ticket items in this province. If there are going to be cutbacks, uh, that's a, a, an area problem. And in fact, that's something that Ford hasn't been specific about, but he is not going to be able to dodge that for the next three months. By June 7th, people are going to have much more of a read. So we're, we're running into an election campaign where, where things really are in flux. Elliot, I think, would have been much more cautious, much more careful. If, in fact, um, Doug Ford was able to run the campaign over the next, between now and June 7th, that Christine Elliott would probably have run, I think he would win. And the polls show that. Um, and we'll see whether or not he's capable of that. I, I kind of have my doubts. Barry, there's a very telling moment in the last leadership debate, the one that was held up in Ottawa, I guess, about a week and a half, two weeks ago now, 
uh, where uh, Granick Allen made the statement uh, that uh, you know if she becomes premier, that she's going to tear those windmills right out of the ground, you know, because of the the terrible thing that they're doing to to the economy, et cetera, et cetera. And Ford was saying, "Yeah, right on. That's a great idea." It was Christine Elliott who was the adult on that and simply said, "You guys understand there are contracts in place. You can't do that. Could, that's this is the gas plant scandal all over again." She she was taking a pragmatic approach, and and I had her on the program last week just before the vote was taken. And I said, you understand how powerless it can be to tell people what they need to hear as opposed to what they want to hear. And I said, you may have crossed the line there. And I said, you said the right thing, but I don't know if it's the right thing to get elected. And I'm not sure that was a factor in what happened on Saturday. But Ford is quite the opposite. He tells people what they want to hear. And it's all slogans. I'm going to trim the fat, you know, stop the gravy train, all this sort of stuff. But it's, it's long on rhetoric, short on detail. Oh, uh, very much. Let me say that if, in the unlikely event, Tanya, because I never really thought that she was going to do any better than fourth, but in the event that Tanya Allen had been elected premier, she wouldn't have done it either. Uh, there are just certain realities. Of course not. And indeed, we're seeing that with Trump. Trump makes all sorts of claims, and but he was just backing off yesterday of his claims on, on gun control. He's certainly done that with regard to the immigration issue in the DACA. He did it with regard to replacing um, Obamacare. It's one thing to say... To make, to make slogans that sound popular. And, and Trump, of course, is a master. And I think the imagery of Trump is something that will haunt uh, Ford unless he's careful, and he doesn't seem to be careful. He wasn't particularly careful. He had his elbows out during the leadership campaign. He does not seem to have a great deal of self-control, maybe better than his brother. He's perhaps not going to be addicted. But nonetheless, he is somebody who, in fact, does not seem to have a great deal of, of self-awareness and concern about what others think of him. When he wants to do something, that's what he's going to do. You're quite right. The, the style difference between Ford and what Christine Elliott would have done, I think Christine Elliott would have been a lock to win the election. And again, the conservatives go into this with a substantial lead in the polls. But whether or not Ford is going to be able to, to work that through, we've got to remember that the Conservatives really, forgetting about the 03 election, which was the Liberals' first win, but in each of the three subsequent elections, 07, 11, and 14, the Conservatives went into those campaigns pretty much on even footing. And one after another with regard to John Tory and the claims about the uh, religious schools, and then with uh, Hudak insulting um, immigrants and uh, certainly with his claim in the last election that he was going to fire 100,000 uh, 100, civil servants, which w would have a multiplier effect of people who would be running in fear. All, in each of those campaigns, the conservatives have blown an election that was winnable. Again, they go into this election with a huge lead, bigger than any of those other times. But it's going to be an interesting, not quite three months between now and June 7th. But are they banking on the fact that uh, the Kathleen Wynne is so unpopular that you could run anybody uh, as your leader and still win this thing? Yeah, look, a smart move. Uh, the, I write columns for the local paper in uh, Kitchener-Waterloo, mm -hmm. uh, and I, you know, the, the smart move was to go with um, Elliot because she was safer. That she was risk averse. She was not going to make mistakes. I think, uh, in fact, in that column, I seem to remember making the comment that uh, Ford seemed to be an accident waiting to happen. Uh, he he may surprise me. Uh, you know, I've certainly been surprised before. But um, I, I I have this feeling he'll be great copy. The media will love this because he's going to be going around saying all sorts of things. Um, and some of them, in fact, may very well antagonize significant groups of the uh, of, of the population. Uh, I, 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 again, this is going to be a much less scripted campaign and much more uncertainty, and that'll lead certainly for excitement in terms of media coverage. But um, I do think that he is capable of making self you know mistakes on his own, not just being pushed into corners by the opposition. This is not going to be a particularly pretty campaign. I'm sure both of the Tories are going after the Liberals. The Liberals are going to go after the Tories. The NDP becomes the interesting player on the side. The NDP has done very well in Hamilton. And some suggest that, indeed, part of 
Ford's appeal is to working class people, and that and and the, the this the sense of the, the term populism frequently is misunderstood. Populism just means anti elitism. It doesn't mean racism. It doesn't mean being anti immigrant. Although the recent incarnations with Trump and certainly in Europe suggest that that's what the terminology means. It, it just really means you're for the little person against the the elite. Uh, but that whether or not he might have a crossover appeal among erstwhile NDP voters. Not so sure about that. Uh, the NDP has done well in the past. doesn't happen very often. But in elections where they've surprised, like in 1990, they do well when both the liberals and the conservatives are in bad odor, where there's a, a sense that people don't like either of them. Then they are prepared to give the NDP a chance. If the liberals and the conservatives run such ugly campaigns about each other, and basically Horvath keeps her head out of it and basically tries to run a, 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 an upscale, uh, you know, a positive campaign, anything's possible. I'm certainly not predicting an NDP win. The smart money right now would be on the Conservatives winning this election. But, um, again, we're going, I think it's going to be a very interesting um, almost three months. But there's just some interesting dichotomies in some of the polling, and I, I, I don't put a whole lot of credibility in polling, but, I mean, there's some consistencies here. Uh, and, and look, we could spend from now until noon talking about some of the problems the Liberals have incurred over their time in government over the last 14 or so years, uh, from gas plants to e-health and all this sort of stuff. We get that. But on the other hand, there are polls that indicate that, you know what, Ontarians, the majority of Ontarians, uh, like the, edu- the the tuition program. They like the pharmacare program. Uh, they like the fact that, notwithstanding with Doug Ford yesterday, hardware rates have gone down considerably. I'm not crazy about how they paid for it. But they have gone down. Minimum wage also. And Those minimum wage. And, and if, and if, the, if the, the liberals and the NDP come with this consistent message that, look at you are like that guy, that stuff all goes away, uh, that brings us back to the, to the Tim Hudak 100,000 people getting fired thing, where people say, I don't think that's going to work for us. I, we can't go there. You're quite right. You're quite right. Um, again, there's a, a core of conservative voters that have strong views on all sorts of issues in terms of less government involvement a stronger social conservative orientation. And those are remembering also the, the decision on the weekend was, was virtually a tie. In fact, Ford had a, few, uh, had a fewer votes by a small amount than, uh, than Elliot did at the end. Uh, but that's not the middle point of Ontario. The middle point of Ontario does not want to see um, candidates insulting each other and moving far to one ideological extreme or another. Which brings up the sex education thing. And again, Ford went on record yesterday saying that he'll scrap that. Uh, and, and I'm asking from your perspective and, and the, the, the impact and, and the feedback that you get, Barry, especially up in your area there now, is that such a big issue? I know it played very well to the base, to the to the right side of the Conservative Party. Uh, you know, and and Granick Allen obviously was the strongest advocate, but Ford jumped on that bandwagon pretty quickly. But I, I'm not getting the sense that a whole lot of people care much about that, aside from that group that always had opposition to it. Yeah, no, I don't think that's an issue that's going to resonate with swing voters. The people voting in Markham on Saturday, of course, weren't swing voters. They were dedicated conservatives. Uh, I, don't, I think that was basically a payoff to Allen and the Allen supporters who clearly moved dramatically over to, uh, uh, to Ford after she was uh, taken off the ballot. In fact, truthfully, all of the voting was done before Saturday anyway. Mm-hmm. It was just it was reported in, in, in that particular way. Uh, no, this is not an issue that I think uh, Ford is going to be advised to spend much time talking about during the campaign. I don't expect to hear a lot about it. It was just a matter of reassuring the people on that far right, basically saying right at the beginning of the campaign so we won't have to talk about it later. Uh, no, sex education is not an issue that's going to change a lot of votes. Among dedicated conservatives, among religious people, I'm sure it, it resonates very effectively, but uh, that's not what this election is going to be decided on. But now that the 
the parties have been chosen, and we know who the players are in this. Uh, that neocon, as they call them, uh, element uh, that 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 have a problem with that and always have. Uh, even if their candidate, even if Ford were to move a little more to the middle or, or not, you know, get so far behind that, they're going to vote for him anyway. I mean, what other choice do they have? That's right. That's right. Uh, and indeed, they voted for Hudak last time because Hudak was still to the right of the others. It's the swing voters, the people who ultimately, in the, in the last election, the liberals did a little bit better than was anticipated. And that allowed them, there was serious talk about a minority government after the, the 20, um, 2014 election. Yeah. Um, those swing voters are not going to be voting on that particular issue, and they are capable. I think swing voters in Ontario are tired. think the Liberals have been around long enough, and they have been. It's been 15 years. The idea of time for a change will, will resonate. But whether or not the kind of change Doug Ford is going to represent is the kind of change that will appeal to moderate voters is really what the election's going to be about. Yeah, because the way that the leader was selected uh, with this ranked balloting is not the way we're going to vote on June 7th. Uh, you know, cities with lots of population are still going to swing the day here. And, and things like transit matter to them, things like social services, things like minimum wage, those matter. Maybe not so much in Blind River or Cobalconk, but they certainly do there. And it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Ford is going to have, because he's already, the one thing he has strongly committed against is the carbon tax. Uh, so that's money that isn't there for other programs. Uh, and that's going to lead to some issues with the federal government. But we can put that aside for the moment. But um, what, at some point, Ford is going to have to address the question of where these tax cuts are going to go and what, what programs it's going to affect. To just talk about the cutting waste, um, I don't think that's going to, that, that, that's not going to be something he's going to be able to rest on for between now and June. Barry Kay, uh, check him out, of course, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. Uh, always interesting conversation, Barry. Thanks so much for this today. Good chatting with you. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. We wanted to get into some of the issues to do with U.S. politics. There's a big election going on in Pennsylvania today that is uh, could actually serve as a precursor for what might happen in the midterm elections uh, later on in the fall. Uh, and then, of course, there was the uh, decision by the Republican members of the Intelligence Committee to basically uh, come to the conclusion that they saw no collusion at all between Trump and the Russians with the information they've seen so far. The Democrats uh, were going to respond to that. That was one. But then all of a sudden, uh, just before we went on to the, show, the air today, of course, came news that Secretary of State Rex Tillerson was fired by President Donald Trump by Twitter, of course, very class act. Uh, and it's it caused actually a chain reaction of, of other appointments and uh, shifting around that's going on that's going to have a direct impact on the Trump administration. Joining us to talk about all of this is uh, Laura Babcock, who is the president of Power Group, who has been watching this very closely. Laura, thank you so much for the time. It's uh, great to have you back with us today. My pleasure. This changes by the moment. Let's 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 go to the big story. The other one's very important and, and worthy of discussion. But let's talk about the Tillerson decision by Trump and the impact this is going to have. Were you surprised? It's been in the works for a while that Tillerson wasn't happy there, that Trump wasn't happy with Tillerson. As you know, there was that famous allegation that Tillerson called Trump a moron, something which he kind of disputed but wouldn't really definitively say that he had not. Uh, and there was a real sense that when there was something major going on, that Tillerson would say one thing and Trump would say something different, even undercut him on Twitter. This idea that they were out of alignment was well established. Well, the basic, but, the best example of that was last week with North Korea, where uh, Tillerson was in Africa and basically said, we're a long way apart. There's no chance of any sort of a meeting or negotiations. And like half an hour later, Trump's out there saying, we're going to have a meeting. Exactly. So he would under undercut his Secretary of State. We're, we're used to thinking the Secretary of State is 
speaking for the president as being uh, a very senior member of a president's cabinet. And this is really, I think, the first time in 75 years that there's been such a short tenure of a secretary of state. And so when you look at this, you have to say to yourself, well, what was it that was finally the straw that broke the camel's back? The president has denounced uh, Mike Pompeo, someone head of CIA who has always been more in alignment with Trump on policies is taking over and that they're moving Gina, uh, a woman named Gina Haskell, I believe her last name is, who was in the CIA up to be the first leader of the CIA. So you want to think that there was some planning in getting the succession issues taken care of. But you also have to wonder, well, what, what was the final straw? And some are looking at the timing of the comments about Russia uh, that happened. There was the gas attack allegedly carried out by the Russians. The British prime minister has put Russia on a clock to take accountability for that or face consequence. And the U.S., as the U.K.'s strongest ally, would not take the same hard line and identify Russia as the cause of those attacks. And so now you have a situation where Russ Tillerson did uh, take a harder line with Russia just last night, and now he's gone today. So is it possible that it had something to do with his stance on Russia? Is it something that was in the works formally and this just happened to be the timing of it? Nobody can be sure of that, but it certainly doesn't help with people looking at whether or not there is some sort of a connection between Russia and Trump, because he just simply will not uh, go after Russia in the hard line that other countries seem to be so comfortable doing. It's not lost on an awful lot of people this morning, uh, Laura, that, uh, that uh, as you mentioned, the, the, the incident where Tillerson is alleged to have called uh, Trump a moron, uh, that, that was some months ago and certainly caused a great deal of consternation between the two. But the minute that Tillerson decides to insult Vladimir Putin, then all of a sudden he uh, he gets the gas pipe here. Uh, and it just makes you wonder about just how far Trump is going to go to try to protect whatever that kind of relationship he has with Putin. And this, the, so the Tillerson timing may or may not be connected to Putin. We really can't get inside of Trump's mind. Possibly it was in the works. But there are a couple of things that are notable. One is that the White House is suggesting that he this conversation had happened with Tillerson, not between Trump and Tillerson directly, but that Tillerson was asked to step down on Friday, but we're seeing a statement from the State Department saying that Tillerson had no idea, doesn't know the reasons for it, and he found out from Twitter. So there seems to already be a breakdown in the story that's coming out of the White House, which, you know, makes you wonder why, why the different narratives. And then also the comments the president just made on the on the lawn, uh, where he said that, in fact, you know, if Russia is responsible for the gas attack, or, you know, the, the poisoning, then... Uh, he will he will be harsh on on Russia or whoever else it is. He's throwing in there this idea that it could be somebody else. It reminds me kind of of the four hundred pound person who might have hacked the election. You know, it could have been Russia, it could have been China, it could have been this four hundred pound guy on the bed. So he always seems to give either benefit of doubt or wiggle room to Russia. And and so this this continual defense of Putin, or very least this this closeness to Putin is disconcerting, and, and it raises questions about the Tillerson firing, given Tillerson's harder stance. There are, you're not going to find too many people that said Rex Tillerson was a great Secretary of State. I mean, as a matter of fact, many quite the opposite. But uh, the one thing that, that people did kind of put in on, on his balance sheet on the plus side, Laura, was that apparently he would stand up and speak out against Trump uh, at cabinet meetings about uh, certain policy decisions or the way Trump might have been leaning on something and talk to him about the implications. Um, and, and Trump does not uh, suffer people who do not agree with him and, and fawn all over him, as we've seen uh, with some of these other cabinet meetings that have had the cameras rolling on them right now. Is that a factor? Well, I think if you get to uh, sort of alpha roles within one space, it can be challenging. Tillerson ran a massive company, much more sophisticated and much more complex 
ExxonMobil, I'm talking about, than anything the Trump organization as a family business ever achieved. And so one of the first indications that the Trump administration might be a serious administration, you'll recall, Bill, was when he was able to secure Rex Tillerson as the Secretary of State. That was a big brag point. See, look, I bring in the best business people. But from the very beginning, uh, the thought was, how is this guy who's used to controlling this huge company and has all these international relationships, how is he going to be controlled by Donald Trump or at least, uh, you know, give Donald Trump the leadership role? And so I think there's been a tension from the beginning, and that can happen with powerful personalities but it never seemed as though the two of them were able to work it out in any real way. I think what's concerning to people is that Rex Tillerson did have a good relationship with Mattis. He did apparently uh, work well with H.R. McMaster. And if you, uh, if you look at the generals that Trump hired, Mattis and McMaster and even John Kelly, they were all supposed to be kind of the grown-ups in the room who were going to get some of this chaos under control. And so there's a concern if Tillerson is fired like this, are they going to stay? Uh, or is this going to be just a bridge too far for them? And then, and then what's left with the White House? Just Trump sycophants? Uh, he's going to lose some of these maybe strong leaders around him. And I think that's where, where people are looking next. Well, I mean, the betting already started. I'm sure you've seen on social media about who's next. Because uh, it's, it's a pretty impressive list. Uh, I don't mean that from the positive side of the number of people that have left the Trump administration have been fired. Uh, and the speculation is that General Kelly may well be next. Uh, whether he's going to get fired or leave of his own volition, we're not sure yet. But he's clearly the next person in line who's quite frankly disenchanted with the Trump administration. Well, because you look at Gary Cohen, who left with the trade tariff, uh, who he was a chief economic advisor. He was another one of these so-called adult experts that stayed even though they didn't love it because they felt they had a duty to keep things on an even keel for the world. Uh, but he, that was too much for him, the, the sort of unilateral announcement on these massive global trade tariffs. So he left. And then you have to wonder to yourself in the decision-making of some of these others, do they stay because they feel as though they might be um, helping to, to keep things under control? Or do they leave out of solidarity or out of principle if they are not you know, appreciating how Trump is handling things or working with their colleagues? So there is so much chaos in the White House. And even though Trump may welcome a chaos management style, it might be his favorite way to run things, it doesn't seem to be providing the kind of stability and decision-making that makes for a reliable ally or a reliable partner on things like trade. And so that's causing a lot of this, uh, you know, people are very um, concerned about it around the world. It might end up working out. There might be some success to that strategy when it comes to something like North Korea. But I think what we saw when Trump was speaking at that campaign rally for his re-election in 2020 uh, this past weekend he was speaking more off the cuff, more Trump from the election campaign. And that might signal that he is, in fact, not going to rein himself in with General Kelly or with these others, that he's going to go with what he knows, and, and that is to just be himself. And, and that might be what we're seeing here, even with him ousting Rex Tillerson. By the way, in that disagreement about North Korea last week, which was highlighted by Trump making the announcement about this potential uh, high-level summit that was to take place, I think you actually posted this on Twitter uh, just a couple of days ago. Uh, it's more than interesting to note that there has been a zero reaction from North Korea by, to that announcement. They haven't confirmed it. They haven't said, yeah, we're looking forward to this. They haven't said anything about this, which I find fascinating. Well, what's really hard about the Trump presidency is whether you like him or you don't like him, you can't ever tell what is serious, what is long-term, what is just tactical, what is just a joke. And for all the times that people, even his commerce secretary, came out on the Sunday show saying, oh, don't pay attention to 
you know, Trump's campaign speak. And then we've heard some people say, oh, you know, take his, his tweets, their jokes, that kind of thing. Well, when you're announcing the you're firing the Secretary of State via Twitter, how can we not parse every one of Trump's tweets uh, and take them seriously? They are, they have become the number one White House communication vehicle. Uh, and so, so it leaves the world always in this state of scramble because his words have no, no real meaning. Uh, they they can start a nuclear war. They can make huge changes around the world in one regard, but on the other regard, you don't know what the veracity of his words are at any given time, or whether or not he'll follow through with his intentions. So it really does create a, a lot of strife for people who try to, who are trying to understand how to navigate this presidency. I want to spend a couple of minutes anyway talking about what we initially were going to talk about before the television story broke. House Republicans breaking with intelligence community on Russia. Their, their official statement on their investigation is that they see no link at all between uh, Trump or his team and any collusion with Russia, which runs contrary to the reports from every other intelligence organization that have weighed in on this in the United States. Your thoughts on that? Well, including some of the intelligence people who weighed in in front of this very committee and gave testimony that is not in alignment with the, with the Republicans on the committee's statement. Uh, and so this is the key, is that this is not the statement of a bipartisan intelligence committee on the House, which would be the traditional way of these committees operating. This is the Republicans. This is not something that the Democrats, who are also on this committee, put forward. And as I mentioned, it is not in line with the very testimony from these intelligence officials to the committee. So it seems as it, like it is a partisan exercise, things that we've seen happen in this investigation from Nunes uh, along the way. There doesn't seem to be a lot of credibility to the investigation at the House level. I think people are hoping that the Senate investigation is going to be more robust and hopefully more bipartisan. So I, I'm not quite sure that people put a lot of stock in what the Republicans on the House committee came out with. And, of course, the Mueller investigation continues, uh, which obviously is uh, ongoing, and, and certain charges have been laid on that, too. And so I guess you, you're absolutely right. We have to put this in context. Uh, you've mentioned uh, from a, a public relations and a marketing standpoint, Laura, that, uh, that Trump certainly does uh, have some gravitas when it comes to that. And, and the changing the channel when uh, there is bad news imminent or bad news is surrounding him is something that he has tried to do on a number of occasions has this whole Tillerson thing and the timing of it uh, more than coincidental with the fact that there's a very key election in Pennsylvania today? Well, there's a couple of things going on. There is a key election where Trump has come out and put some of his equity at risk. Once again, uh, he's, he's supporting a Republican candidate who, just on paper, certainly is not nearly as strong as the Democratic candidate who is a former Marine and, a, I believe, a, a state's attorney general. He's uh, apparently an excellent candidate, uh, the Democrat. And this is a state that, or this is an area that Trump got by 20 points. So Trump is going in there trying to help this Republican get over the line. It should be an easy Republican victory, but it doesn't look like that with the polling going in today's vote. So Trump has put some equity out there. He did it also, as you remember, with with Moore in the other, in the Alabama election. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't like it when he backs up somebody and they don't end up winning. So that's a tough play for Trump to make today, and everyone will be watching very carefully to see if it's a symbol of a blue wave coming. But also, uh, there's the Stormy Daniels situation coming, where apparently she is she has spoken to 60 Minutes, and her interview will be coming out, and the Trump administration is apparently trying to stop it, but will probably not succeed in that regard. So that's another bad headline. I mean, there, there are so many that you're never quite sure if Trump is trying to distract, which one he's trying to distract from. Or maybe just the thought that if there's so much, if you flood the zone, so to speak, in public relations, 
people can't focus on one negative for too long. The Pennsylvania thing is fascinating on a couple of different levels because that is one of the swing states that surprisingly uh, supported Trump. I mean, the the Democrats and Hillary Clinton were counting on that because traditionally it does go Democrat, uh, as did Ohio and Michigan, and and all three of those swung over to Trump. And uh, and a, a defeat for his candidate in this particular situation uh, might well serve as a bellwether for what might happen in November during the midterms. It may, because the, it's certainly a bellwether state in, in terms of what we saw. But in terms of this particular area, uh, it is it has it's the suburbs, I, I believe, around Pittsburgh, and it has all for the last several um, election cycles it has gone Republican. So this should have been an easy victory. The very fact that they had to put $10 million into this local race, uh, the fact that they had to bring the president there to try to get this candidate over the line says that there is maybe not just a good Democratic candidate, but there is also a blue wave that we've seen in some of these other um, off-year elections. We've seen them, the, the Republicans being soundly beaten in areas where not only Trump did very well, but they've done well traditionally. So people will be watching this, Bill, to your point, to see whether or not this indicates a vulnerability. Because this very candidate very much ran as a Trump candidate. In fact, his last words uh, in his final kind of wrap-up speech were that some of the people supporting this Democratic candidate don't love the country and don't love God. So if that's not uh, really trying to push it as far over the line as you can, uh, it, it almost seemed desperate. So if, they, if he loses, and by any kind of a margin, people are going to say that the Trump formula is not going to work in the midterm election. The politics of division, which uh, sadly seems to have become the new normal, hasn't it? Absolutely, and fear. Fear is a great motivator. I mean, if this comes down to energizing the Republicans to get out and vote, because traditionally there's not a lot of good turnout in these off off elections, uh, you know, saying that the that the people who are running the Democrats don't love God and don't love the country is just about as as much as you can wrangle to get people upset and to get them to turn out of the polls today. Again, and if that doesn't work, and if the if Trump's big performance on the weekend doesn't help. People have to wonder whether or not only Donald Trump can run like Donald Trump and anyone else who tries it is going to fail. Laura Babcock uh, from Power Group. Thanks as always, Laura. Great talking with you again today. My pleasure, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.